0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dur, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Simon Wickham-Smith on the show talking about his new book, Politics and Literature in Mongolia, 1921 to 1948, published by the Amsterdam University Press in 2020. Dr. Wickham-Smith, welcome to the show. Hi, Dagena. How are you? I'm good. It's really a pleasure to have you um, sharing these wonderful translations and also studies of uh, Mongolian literature in the modern period. Uh, congratulations on getting the book published, by the way.
1: No, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's nice for it to be out finally.
0: Great. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview with a bit of self-introduction. Can you maybe say a few words about yourself and how you became interested in Mongolian studies and particularly in modern Mongolian literature?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I guess it all comes out of uh, the fact that I w- was in my, 19- in my uh, 20s, I was uh, a Tibetan Buddhist monk and I learned Tibetan. And I also learned Mongolian and I felt that there was some benefit in learning Mongolian, um, even as I was just thinking about and reciting Tibetan texts. Um, as a monk. And then when I uh, returned my robes and came back to um, secular, lay life, um, I became very interested in uh, researching Mongolian and Tibetan uh, literature and particularly hagiographical literature like the Sixth Dalai Lama's um, secret biography. And that led me to uh, a parallel text um, which was the, uh, the collected works of um, Danzan Ravsha, a 19th century monk from the Gobi, Dantan Ravsha. And I eventually got around to getting hold of a copy of his collected works and I worked through that, learning Mongolian as I did so. And then uh, by the end of that, I I just thought, well, you know, what can I do with this now? And then I found on the Internet uh, uh, the the email of, a, of what turned out to be a person who turned out to be the most, well, one of the most important writers of his generation in Mongolia. And I wrote to him and said, you know, I've done this. So uh I expected him to say, well, thank you and good luck, but he invited me to Mongolia. And so I went to Mongolia and I became very close friends with him and with a number of other writers. And the book that we're going to be talking about today really comes out of that whole development of learning Mongolian through reading literature and studying literature in Mongolia through and through texts and thinking about texts in relation to my own development as a, a scholar of Mongolia and Mongolian, but also through my exposure to Mongolia as a place and as a culture and as a society. So that's really how I, I come to this particular point in my life with this book, you know,
0: Thank you for sharing that, Yeah, um, I think your really rich experiences um, in the past has really informed um, many interesting aspects of this book, uh, which we will talk about further. Um, So politics and literature in Mongolia is actually based on a really diverse collection of Mongolian texts, uh, most of which have never been translated uh, nor discussed in English scholarship until now, actually. Um, so, how did you come to write this book? What's the sort of the story behind the project? And and in the introduction of the book, you explained that researching for this book was rather complicated. For a number of issues. right? We know for Mongolian studies there's the challenge of language, there's also the challenge of accessing archives. Um, so what were the most difficult things you encountered while writing this book?
1: Yeah well the the, the origin of the book is really uh, in a I suppose in a really in, in a wish to explore the literature. I was trained Um, in literature. My first degree is in English literature and language, and so I really wanted to think about the literature, and the politics bit really didn't come into it until I actually started to think about it properly and to work on on a proposal. And it seemed very clear very quickly that maybe like thinking about um, literature in the Soviet Union or in post-1948 China, that um, politics is inextricable from almost every aspect of society in a very um, uh, explicit way. And so I began to think about how this text, rather than being a, um, a literary critical text, could actually expand the readership and expand the ideas to include politics and the way in which writers reflected the political situation. Because, of course, writers didn't get, um, they, they had no opportunity to publish unless they passed the censor. And in order to pass the censor, you could only write in a particular way. So, and about partic- in a particular way about particular things. And so I thought that by examining, particularly the early, the, the early literature, as in this book, I could get an idea, which we don't really have in English scholarship, of the way in which Mongolia developed as um, a society and uh, as a culture during these first two or three decades after the revolution. And as for the difficulties, well, if, any, if anyone has been to Mongolia, they will realize that Mongolia is still um, influenced by Soviet bureaucracy. And there are problems sometimes with getting into libraries. But also, simply getting your hands on books is not always so easy because um, there's a network of old bookstores, second-hand bookstores, and there's also a growing number, three or four I think now, of um, shops selling new books. But the thing is that everybody, all these books that are made, um, that have been published since 1991, are uh, um on a on a one run basis, and you know they're published by the individuals who write them, or you know by by a sponsor. They're not publishing. There are very few opportunities for a publishing venture in Mongolia. Um, there, I think there are a few publishing companies now, but basically this literature is published by individuals. And if you think about the, the older books before the revolution of 1990, uh, 19, 1901, uh, all of those were published by the the state publishing house, but they are not being republished because there's no one to republish them because people die and their children die and no one is really interested anymore. Um, and that's that's one of the main problems with um, researching this literature so every year i go and spend i don't know 150 200 or even maybe more on buying books from the 50s and 60s and 70s um, which are probably not easily available outside mongolia and the supply of which is also diminishing in mongolia because people because people's um, libraries get broken up, and um, books get somehow somehow destroyed. I, I had an interview with a writer who who since died a couple of years ago. His name was Bast, and he was ninety eight years old. He was born in nineteen twenty one, the year of the uh, communist revolution. And I asked him because I was searching for. Um, magazines and journals from the 40s and 50s and I said to him so do you have any copies that I could look at and maybe scan and he said you know um, I I don't have any more because in the early 90s when fuel was really difficult to get hold of and it was very cold in the winter I had to burn something And so I burnt these journals. And I said, well, didn't you want to keep them? And he said, well, yeah, but uh, I didn't think I could sell them because no one was interested. And so we, we we also have that where, you know, I'm sure you and I would start burning our books if we were that cold and we had nothing else to do, even however much we want to keep them. Um, we would have to do that in order to keep alive. And this was was the situation too. So there are a lot of social and environmental and political situations in which um, this would be very, uh, in which it's very difficult to get hold of some of the books. Mm.
0: Thank you. And it was interesting to read how the books you found, right, had missing sections sometimes and there's also like personal interventions like people scribble things in the margins and you 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 even find uh things uh interesting things stuck inside the books yeah
1: yeah Yeah. it's it's really nice i mean you know we we don't generally go into bookstores in the states and find um this kind of thing you know people practicing there, there, there was one book where people where this kid was practicing writing um, Cyrillic script, and I mean it was from the fifties, so presumably it wasn't that new. But you know, obviously she or he hadn't, you know, they, they were just learning to write, and there were all these letters in the back of this book, and you know, there, yeah, there, there are pictures. I, I suspect you're referring to the barely covered woman. In 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 the book by Boyanovic, at the back on the back page of the book by Boyanowicz, yeah, I mean it, it's it's really very nice to see these um the, these uh, this evidence of of people whether or not they were interested in the book they were at least doing something with it and probably got it off a shelf and just maybe flipping through and reading and there, there were also yeah I mean there are there also books where sections are missing or where the front covers are missing. Um, and yet they're still sold because presumably the idea is that the, it's the material inside that's important um, rather than the appearance, which I I, I really value that um, because we put so much um, emphasis in our culture on appearance, but it's actually the meat inside the covers, sorry, mm-hmm dreadful mixed metaphor but the the meat inside the covers which is really important and i have found so much so many precious pieces of work um in what are really very badly treated um scrap scrappy books yeah so it's it's a it's a it's, a, it's an adventure it's a beautiful adventure and finding treasure in the most unlikely um bookstores
0: yeah and i guess um after you devour the meats um you you can of course burn burn the bones right it makes sense it's already there
1: (laughs) yeah i I, I thought you were going to say it then i could regurgitate it but maybe that's (laughs) not so such an attractive (laughs) not such an attractive image yeah but absolutely yeah and encourage people also to read read it um and increasingly, there are um electronic copies of some of these books, very few, but there are some available online um and Of course, if you go to Mongolia, then you can go to the the stores and find them anyway um, so they are available but it's 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 tough it, you know it's it's a real it's a real search for some of these works,
0: yeah, I can imagine. And um, it's really interesting how you're approaching these uh, really interesting sources of text, right? And also the narratives that they contain. Um, So in the introduction of your book, you introduced this idea or this method of literary ethnography, in which you, uh, quote, construct narratives to read a text as an individual's creative response to their particular situation, unquote. Uh, so please tell us more about this approach that you're taking in the book um, to study the text that you found. How does it help you to navigate through the issues of researching Mongolian socialist literature?
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think we have this kind of monolithic idea of people in communist countries you know uh, if you're a successful writer then you're probably completely brainwashed by the the government and will do anything that you can to be published and you have made yourself believe the nonsense that is um promoted and that's it so you know we are we as foreign scholars we're very sort of sympathetic towards writers, but, you know, we we don't really, I don't think we always give them the credit um, of being really engaged in the process of politics. Um, so my idea of literary ethnography, I, d- I don't know whether it's a new idea or whether it's just one that I hadn't tapped into before, but it seems that... You know, if you read a a text, you get an insight into many different things. You get an insight into the author, you get an insight into his or her audience and into the culture. And in a a very centralized and maybe we can say repressive or at least suppressive um, political system such as Mongolia's in the first two or three decades of the uh, following the um, communist revolution, w- we couldn't see that these factors are influential, but they're not exclusive. There, there was actually quite a lot of leeway, particularly in this early period. And so it, it began to seem to me, as I worked through um, some of these themes that we're going to be discussing in a while, um, that what these writers were doing was actually trying to think um, think through the implications of the of the policies in which they were living. So very, very few um, of these particular texts mentioned... Um, policies but they rather talked about uh, the ideas that were being discussed so you know we'd have you know that there was this trope even before the revolution of the libidinous monk and the the libidinous monk is not easy to say thank goodness i haven't been drinking the libidinous monk was a very old trope. And you find it of course in Tibetan literature too. Tibetan and Mongolian Buddhist or rather literature created during a Buddhist period, people used to make fun of these people who didn't keep their vows. Well, in the um in the more repressive times of the 1930s, for instance, the, libid- the libidinous monk became um a kind of cipher for the fact that monks were um no, the, the religion and the monks who practiced religion were um to be shunned and uh and that this is not a revolutionary position and even though mongolia remained um nominally free uh, a country of religious freedom um the suppression of the monks went along with this um idea that the monks were corrupt and oversexed and um they were not really to be trusted and you find that also in terms of monastic medicine too with the introduction of western medicine so you know you, so some of these things were um taken in and used so, so some of the old-fashioned ideas were taken in and used um for um, the, the the new literature too, right? Um, yes. What was the rest of your question?
0: Uh, yeah, I think I think you answered uh, most of the mm. question. So, yeah, we were gonna talk about this more, especially uh, later in later chapters um, seven and also um, six, where right? we were talk about uh, religion and also medicine and the critiques that come out right in the modern literatures. Yeah, so um, the first chapter of the book, Prefiguring 1921, um, gives us a really useful overview of where Mongolian literature found itself at the time of the revolution, at the moment of revolution 1921. Um, So you describe this moment in Mongolian history as, quote, out of the frying pan into the fire, unquote. I I find this this, um, analogy really useful. to uh, describe the situation. So where a system of colonization under the Qing Empire was now replaced by a revolutionary system under Soviet influence. Um, So what was Mongolian literature like at this moment? Uh, What changes were there in the literary tradition before and after the revolution?
1: Yeah. so, um, So primarily, people learned to read. They were either scribes for the government, for the Qing, or they were monks or presumably a little bit uh, a few of the nuns also learned to read but <clears throat> they were reading also primarily Tibetan texts but at least they wrote they, they also read and maybe wrote to Mongolian so um, these um, educated people were the ones who really did a lot of the writing and so you have um, you have uh, religious figures um, like uh, Zawadamdin, and you have also um, people like um, Galik Balson, um, and so so Galik Balson in particular was interesting because he was a, a what is called a uh a, a praise singer, someone who would. Um, recite prayers for particular um, reasons, for particular requests and events. And so he was writing um, this kind of thing in terms of uh, very sort of natural events. He, he wrote a um, poem requesting rain for a, a community in the Gobi that was um, experiencing a tremendous drought. But into this otherwise traditional form, he also included um, the beginnings of what appeared to be some kind of social um, insights, the the kind of which were um, continued in the revolution uh, in terms of uh, socialist and and communist theory. Um, But also you have people who... We're also thinking of um, the 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 new the new developments in in the country after the after the revolution. Uh, sorry, after the um, after the Qing dynasty collapsed, and people like Gamala, who wrote a um, a poem in praise of the car. So it, it was really like a a, a kind of. Um, peeing to the car, but presumably he'd only ever seen one or two cars. I think there were, there were like six or seven cars in Mongolia at that time. So maybe he'd seen one and he was very interested and he imagined that other people might be interested. Also in the, the way in which they moved, cars moved without human input or without being fed. And I mean, I, I think we cannot... Um, essentialize these um, people too much, um, because you know, presumably they had some idea about um, vehicles that that moved without being fed. Um, but this was a period, I think, um, a kind of liminal period or a pivotal period is possibly a better way of saying it, where the modern world. Was beginning to be felt in some ways, and but the traditions were really really important. And Gamala himself was quite a traditional author, and really focused on uh, Mongolian tradition and Mongolian cultural ideas from from the past in his work. But obviously, this image of the car kind of piqued his interest and. We see in in this particular poem kind of very um, interesting descriptions um, of how the car works and um, his perception of how the car works and his perception of what the car looks like as it moves along. And of course, I mean, speed would also become an interesting aspect to travel in the, Twenties and the thirties with bus travel, and so people were buying. Oh, so were were travelling a lot uh, in the twenties and thirties, and so the 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 movement was quicker than a horse. So you get a different perception of movement. Um, so in this period, we are we're, we're seeing the 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 new these new ideas and new social ideas too. Not only in these um, pieces by gelig Balson, but also um, in uh, the work of Bodo, who was who would become one of the the leaders after the revolution. Um, he wrote um, a piece called uh, um something like a, a a pretty little tale. You could maybe describe it like that. And so th- this has a scene of of um, a scene in where in in which a um a judge comes in and judges a uh, a kind of haphazard rather hastily thrown together case and so you get a uh, a kind of a, a, a hinting at a judicial system such as would be um introduced in about i think 1924 or 1925 this this was first introduced in Mongolia after the revolution, and it also then prefigures a work like um, uh, Maril Shah Maral and Shah, the, the tale of Maral and Shah, in which uh, a, another case is tried, um, a, an attempted murder case, and there there is a much stronger idea of of how society is becoming more. Um, more aware of the judicial uh, judicial process and about fairness, so all of these social and scientific and religious ideas were being developed in this period. Um, and of course, this was the time where where newspapers such as Shinto, the new the new Mirror, was being published were being published um so you have a lot of uh interest in western education western ideas western thought and also of course the um at about the same time the may 4th movement was happening in china and new youth in china and also of course in russia the 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 process that would lead to the october revolution so you have all of these this kind of melting pot of ideas um, seeping into Mongolia and people responding, even traditionalists like Gamala were responding to um, these ideas in their work. Hmm. Mm.
0: Yeah. So in addition to print media, like newspapers, and and I guess also uh, text, uh, literature, um, drama or um stage or performance was another kind of genre or medium right to spread the new ideas um or especially revolutionary um ideas and this is explored in your um next chapter chapter 2 staging a revolution so here you discuss the genre and also the works of revolutionary drama Uh, Which you argue actually brought both the ideology and experience of the revolution to the larger majority of Mongolia's population, who were uh, mostly illiterate. Um, So, what kinds of performances were staged, and how did they kind of connect these new ideas to the audience?
1: Yeah, well, the the thing was, of course, that um, the majority, like you say, was illiterate and. So the only way of getting uh, revolutionary ideas was not through books, um, but through staged performance. And what they they seem to have done is to um, take the uh, the traditional um, drama, traditional dramatic genres or traditional dr- dramatic tropes, and reapply them to um, revolutionary themes. So um, there there was a a, a writer called Ayush, and he was really the theoretician of the drama uh, in the early period. And he drew up a list of, I think, 16 of these tropes, um, which are listed in, in, in the book. And some of these are, again, we have the libidinous monk, and and the um the flirty woman and um the old people who learn something new and you know the 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 wicked nobles and you know things like this and a a lot a lot of buddhist texts the Kind of more popular Buddhist texts were also used, and so these will have come from earlier times before the revolution. But they were sort of co-opted and used for getting the idea of this, um, this new um, texts. Um, uh, uh, so these, um, let me start again. So the, the these these. Um, these uh, these dramatic forms were used in order to get the new revolutionary ideas over to the to the population uh, to to the audiences. So, um, throughout this period in the in the twenties, particularly particularly, there were um, staging of performance where it was really intended to. Develop the, the, the new ideas of equality and um, maybe secularism to a certain extent. Um, but it, it, the real idea was to think about how the nobles and the monks who had previously been really ruling indirectly each of their local communities how how the how the working people could actually be transformed into in a way we might say shareholders in this new revolution so you know it, it was all really in order to 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 get that idea out and so you know like a, um, a work like Bonamics. Play Unen or the Truth, which was really a kind of um, agitprop kind of uh, play, but was um, well, was staged at the beginning of 1931 to uh, to commemorate the 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 founding of the National Theatre of Mongolia. This was a really interesting play because basically there was very very little dialogue but a lot of um action and so you know it it was highly symbolic um people wearing um masks who were obviously like nameless um identityless slaves were um encouraged by someone, obviously a revolutionary leader, to take their masks off. And there, was a, there seems to have been a kind of inbuilt fear in this community of slaves, but eventually someone takes their mask off and um, in this rather sort of crass symbolism, everybody takes their mask off and then, you know, there, there is a sense of freedom. And so you can see, I, I don't know, it, it, it's for, for us maybe thinking about this today, it sounds extremely patronizing to, to treat your audience like this as a kind of fools who can't work it out for themselves. But, you know, I think this was why the revolution actually was supported. It's because, you know, the revolution offered, offered something that was very meaningful to people who thus far had been heavily suppressed and um, not in an explicit way maybe, but in a in a kind of social way, you know. Um, endless generations of people not being able to do this or that and being taxed and being basically servants and slaves. Um, there was... Finally, light at the end of a tunnel, but a tunnel that they hadn't even noticed necessarily. So, I think that this was the reason why drama was initially so popular because people, you know, used to get together in small communities and have drama. There, there wasn't really a, a system, a network of Actors, maybe there were some travelling actors like Danson Raffia, for instance, organised his um, Gobi Theatre. But you know, most people didn't travel. I mean, most people, most actors didn't travel doing sort of sold out shows. You know, people would get together in communities and um, and act. And this new revolutionary theatre was such that you know, they, they did the best that they possibly could and the better your performance the more likely it was to actually have an impact on your audience and then in the, in the 30s of course they, they, the government invited um, two Soviet um, directors uh, Andrei Efremov and Victor Boratio uh, and Victor Boratio who had studied with Stanislavski, and they they injected a whole new kind of professionalism into the theatre. And this was, of course, the time where the professionalism of the arts had um, started to be felt with the founding of the National Theatre, and which had developed out of the Sochbater Club, which was. Originally a voluntary club, um, but yeah, th- this professionalism required serious training, and Efremov and Boratio bought an idea of serious training and of real of people who acted as a as as their job, and you know, over a very short period of time, maybe twenty years, Mongolian drama went from very haphazard, probably quite inept. Um, performances where people just got around, uh, uh, hung around, and just did their best. Um, to what by the end of the '30s was actually quite a sophisticated and well-ordered, albeit highly influenced by the Soviet Union mm. um, system of of, of drama. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's really really interesting. And in addition to, I guess, themes of um, sort of class struggle and also um, themes of revolution, um, it, it was really interesting to read in Chapter 3, uh, Landscape re that Mongolian writers were actually writing a lot about the connections between humans, animals, and the land, right? Even though that industrialization and urbanization was... Uh, very much sort of the theme of the time and was very much going on in society. Um, so what does this tell us about the voices of these indigenous Mongolian writers who are writing in a socialist modernity? Yeah,
1: I think the, the thing that we really discover is that um, however socialist this writing was, however industrialized this writing was, the people who were writing it were still products of a herding society, and so any anyone, everyone mentioned in this book grew up in a in a Mongolia that was not the Mongolia that we know today. Everybody came from a herding background. Um, very, very, I mean, Natsagdorj grew up very close to Mulanbata, or Hure, as it was, and uh, his father was involved in the government. He was a scribe for the government, so he probably got the most... um, He probably saw the most kind of urbanized that uh, Mongolia was at this time, but most people grew up herding, um on the land experiencing the uh the landscape and the the ancestors in the landscape and manifested by the landscape they grew up with storms and snows and riding horses Um, their mother um, boiling milk and tea their father going out to herd um, maybe not coming back if there was a storm having to look after the sheep or the the goats and coming back really frostbitten and you know the the la- even today when we go to mongolia I, I speak for myself i feel connected to the landscape in a way that we cannot be in the United States, even if we're in the middle of Montana or Nebraska, but um, or even in Alaska, maybe. Maybe that's the closest we can be. But, you know, these writers came out of that. And so when you get, um, for instance, Natsuk Dorji's Po Mininutak, or My Homeland, My my Ancestral Land, um so, you know, you, you, you feel that however however much this is a writer who supported the, the, soci, the, the Socialist Revolution, many of whose works were about the development in healthcare and the importance of Western medicine and Western culture, who had been educated in Germany in the late 20s, all that notwithstanding, he writes um stories that and stories and poems like mini Nuttag. he writes work that appeals to a readership who also grew up with herders, who also um, lived in a gear, who went out of their front door their their gear door and all they could see was the landscape and the landscape was a, a sacred area um, where you know you don't dig a nail into the grass you um, say prayers when you go round um, the, the the stone cares the ore you know you I don't know whether we can really Understand. Maybe people who are brought up in Native American communities have a, a sense of this, but we don't really understand the the extent to which the landscape plays a very significant role, even in this socialist time. And these um, the, these poems and these stories um, really speak to. Uh, a population, an, an audience, a readership for whom the landscape was absolutely central. And even today, um, a story in Mongolia often begins with um, a, a paragraph describing the environment at the time of year that, it's, that, the, that, the, that the story takes place, um, unless it's in... Or Um and even then we talk. We, you know, we we read about the sky or about the air or about um, flowers. So there's always this feeling of the environment as being. I think what we feel is that the environment is that the humans relate to the environment and the environment relates to the humans. Always in Mongolian literature, we have an idea that um, nature is more powerful, that we are simply one small aspect of nature within within the, the, the grand scheme of things. And the writers are writing about this even in even in the 1940s in very very repressed times where all the writing was really to the in in order to help the party in order to help the developing relationship with the soviet union in order to promote the new man shinchun uh, the 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 idea of the socialist person all of this is done on with a backdrop of um, of the landscape of nature of air of sun of the moon and the stars nothing you know there's no there's no idea that we are separate in the way that there was in the in the Soviet Union theres no idea of um, su- suppressing the landscape of making it ours there's always this feeling that the landscape is what we live in and that sustains us not the other way around
0: mm. yeah this idea of homeland or a new talk is, is very much a strong kind of affective idea right and I see parallels um, in um, sort of PRC um era inner mongolia for example in the early 50s and 60s like the literature and also songs um, that they produce um even by you know inner mongolian uh, artists or intellectuals or writers who grew up in very much urbanized settings you know they they sing about or they write about this this new talk this kind of eternal homeland that a place of a different kind of temporality and different kind of spatiality that that you can have, right? A special relationship with with nature is still very much there. Um, There's definitely parallels there.
1: Yeah. Although, of course, in Inner Mongolia, that is becoming slightly less now, right? Yeah. But if you look at the work of a writer like Sensogd, the Inner Mongolian writer Sensogd, you, you really find that in his work, too, in the 40s and 50s. hmm
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so in the 1920s, um, Mongolia was also kind of going under this process of Stalinization. Um, this is tr- sort of traced in Chapter 4 of your book, Leftward Together. And there is also this growing pressure that Mongolian writers were facing, um, you know, in um, with regard to the things that they can write about and the things that they cannot write about. Um, so were they still writing about um this nostalgic idea of homeland? Uh, what other kinds of themes were allowed, um uh, were encouraged to be published in Mongolian literature at this point?
1: Mm. Well, um this chapter is really framed by the publication of uh an anthology of writing in nineteen twenty nine. This was published under the auspices of the Writers Union that had been, actually, it was called the Revolutionary Writers Group, which had been set up in January of nineteen twenty nine, following the um, the the General uh, MPRP um, Congress the previous year, and that was in a, as a result of the. Um, the collapse of all the writers' groups in the Soviet Union into the Writers' Union. So already in this 1929 anthology, we see the um, the real development of uh, the relationship between the the Mongolian revolutionary party and the soviet revolutionary party and so the uh this anthology marks the beginning of of what was later described as the leftward turn which was really a um a period of enforced collectivization and a crackdown uh, some level of crackdown of um religious freedom too and in this uh, anthology we have really a vehicle for the members of the writers group to publish their own work and so um two or three individuals really stand out and this is boyan emek who's re- represented i think by the majority of these texts and um Chimid, who eventually died at about uh, 1930, 32, um, and uh, a, a couple of other writers who became very important later. But the, the majority of the writers here were had joined this group in order, we think, we assume, in order to develop... Um, the idea of revolutionary socialist writing. And although, of course, socialist realism hadn't been defined yet, it was first discussed in 1932 by Gorky and then incorporated much more, much later, into Mongolian literature. We, we, we see the beginnings here in some of the, the works like um, uh, Buyanamek's um discussions between um, cars for instance he had he has a few of these sort of vignette discussions between cars and bicycles and trains and they are talking um, in a very kind of panchatantra influenced sort of way right um but they are talking really about, class issues and social issues and the the idea of industrialization becomes very important in some of these um, uh, these these dialogues although even in 1929 there was a certain amount there, there was a beginning of industrialization it wasn't really until the 40s that it was very serious but these sort of predictive, Texts we, we can say were well, kind of encouraging readers to think about Mongolia as an industrial society, as a forward thinking society, a progressive society, and a society really um, in very close connection with Stalin and with the Soviet Union. So, um, what was really permitted, it wasn't so much that things were not permitted I think as things were really encouraged so people were encouraged to write about what was new about ideas of um social class of um social progress about um uh vehicles about industrialized maybe not industrialization so much as scientific changes and uh, there's a part of that book the, the second half which is full of revolutionary songs and the songs maybe in a way are more are more indicative of these uh social changes than than the uh the dialogues and the uh the stories because really we have songs about uh female emancipation um about relationship with stalin uh, between stalin and tribelson the the mongolian leader at the time or well, actually at that time he wasn't the mongolian leader but he was obviously becoming a kind of de facto um primus into paris figure um and you know what was what is really important about this anthology is that it's really the first anthology of literature. So what we have is a is a is a, a a group of texts that were edited and presumably censored in a very rudimentary way. Censorship hadn't really kicked off in Mongolia, but it was it was becoming one means of keeping things in order. Um, so this was a censored. Um, self-appointed group of of writers, and the state published this. And so, if readers read that book, they would know basically what they were being asked to think about, and the way in which they were being asked to think about it. And you know, they would get an idea of a Mongolia that was forward-thinking, that was free, um, in which uh, religion. Was kind of um, m- maybe the bad things in religion were, were really being pointed out. There's a there's a um, a poem about um, a monk and a woman, and it was a very it's a very suggestive and very kind of frivolous um, text about uh, a, a lot of double entendre and a lot of um, sexual innuendo um, to show that the monk was breaking his vows. And then you also have a much more serious um, <clears throat> uh, poem in which uh, the violence carried out against young monks by the older monks was um, is shown very clearly. So you have... Um this kind of feeling from the book that Mongolia is entering into a new, uh, fairer, more equitable, less maybe superstitious uh, and more um, a, a country that is looking towards the Soviet Union, but which is also finding its own way through through these new processes and these new ideas.
0: Um, Yeah, so thank you for your answers. And at the same time, um, there were also a lot of new social policies, right, that were being implemented to bring Mongolia sort of in line with the Soviet Union. Um, So this is sort of discussed in um, Chapter 5. And you turn our attention specifically to um, Buyan Neme's 1936 novella, Tovdai the Herder. So through this specific literary work, um, what kinds of new social policies implemented can we observe, and also how did the Mongolian writers uh, write about social change that emerged right as a result from these new policies?
1: Yeah, well, Tovdai the Huda is a really is a really interesting uh, text. Um, it was actually commissioned. It seems to have been commissioned by the agricultural ministry in nineteen thirty-five, um, and this was really as a what, what was really happening is that the um, they wanted to increase increase yield and increase the ability of younger uh, herders to learn from older herders and to develop the, what was really considered to be the major source of Mongolia's economic growth, which was the herding community and the, um, the animals and the animal products that they made. So, obviously, Buinoek was commissioned to do this and to, to write a, a, a story that would help help with this. So, Tovudai is uh, is as we can tell a herder, and he is, um, he's actually about my age. He's in his early fifties, but he's um, considered an old, an, an old, very experienced old man, um, which tells you actually a lot about the the life expectancy and the situation uh, at this stage. <clears throat> so. This story tells the story of his life, really, from before the revolution to this period in the 1930s. This was a technique that was used in several stories talking about how how before the revolution life was grim and how after the revolution life was perfect. We see this um, in... A really famous story called *Gullaksen Huchen or the, *The Rejected Girl*, *The Scorned Girl* by uh, Damdinsuren, where you know again we have a um, a situation before the the revolution where women were really suppressed and treated very um, badly, and then the revolution comes and women are allowed to go and get educated and make a make their own life. And so going back to Tovudai, we have um, a, a man who <coughs> was uh, raised in a situation where um, local um, uh, the, the, the local nobles can basically treat him as a slave. And he goes through that and he has a family and his son becomes involved with the revolutionary youth movement, which seems to have been a, pretty well about as a, uh, oppressive as the Red Guard in 1966, China. Um, and, they, and there's a vignette where he's, he, he beats this guy up for, for spreading false information but it's it's very brutal. It's really brutal. And Tovudai is obviously a, a becoming a wise, a, a wiser man, and he's very upset by his son's behaviour. But then eventually, he's you know they, they try to collectivise his um, flock. Um, his, his flock. I think he, I think he 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 works with sheep, um, and. You know, this is a kind of an oppressive, left-wing, leftward-moving situation. But then, after the end of this period in this this leftward movement in the nineteen thirty-two, with the new the new turn policy comes in, and um, things settle down a bit. And so eventually, he is recruited by someone who comes in from Ulanbata and they say, you know, you have a lot of experience. You, you know what you're doing with animals. And we'd like you to come to a conference in Ulanbata of um, <clears throat> experienced herders. And so he goes to Ulanbata and there's this section of the story where he's traveling and, you know, he goes faster than he's ever been on a horse and so we have the new the new ideas that i was talking about in terms of speed and in terms of vehicles and travel and he travels from his home in um in Hoft in the area around Hoft to Olombata over a period of several days and he arrives in Olombata and the rest of the basically the, th- the third of the, the three sections of this um, story is basically the entire conference. Then Buenamek stops being a, a writer, uh, a fiction writer, and becomes a journalist. So, you know, it's, 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 you can actually see in this story how in terms of style and in terms of th- theme, Buyanamek himself is learning how to be a writer because he's also a journalist. So part of the story is fiction. Part of it is kind of journalism. And the journalism part is talking about how Tobu is listening to all of these speeches and there are sections of the speeches and I don't know whether they're verbatim sections. Apparently um, Buyanamek took part in this conference. So maybe he was one of the journalists who was covering the conference, so maybe he incorporated some verbatim speech into his um, text. That would be a very interesting subject to, um, uh, to, to research in terms of this particular story. Um, but then uh, Tovudai learns about the new method of veterinary science and how there are Soviet... Um, veterinarians who are coming, and you know this particular disease called rind pest or rind pest that I didn't know about. You see, you learn a lot doing this research, um, and this appears to have been a very important disease at this time. Something that they really wanted to get to get a control over, and so Tobudai learns about. The new methods of 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 agriculture and uh, veterinary science, um, and how to um, new methods of herding, and so he goes back to Hovd, and becomes in the in the final two or three paragraphs, Buynemik says that he becomes a really respected herder, and everybody goes to him for advice. So he's gone. He's he's. The story is about how how. The average herder grows during um, his, presumably his or her, I guess, lifetime over the pre-revolutionary period and by 1935 is regarded as a really important, um, not only a really important local herder, but as a kind of herding hero by the government, Um, uh, presumably moving into the next stage of mongolia's agricultural experiment so so herding is obviously really really important and so we go back to the idea of the landscape is also really important because if you don't have a um a good relationship either scientifically or spiritually with your landscape you can't actually be a particularly good herder so you know this whole the 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 whole organic relationship between um Mongolia is a landscape and Mongolia is an ongoing de- um, socialist experiment that is really important in this in in this process that is outlined in this this uh, this story um, and the the only problem with this story is that it's not tremendously well written you know he's still working out how to how to combine um, fact and fiction and you know it's It gets a bit boring when you have yet another um, speech being described. But the the overall effect is, uh, you can see it from the point of view of the reader at the time, that it was actually a very meaningful story if you're a herder, seeing how your value to the government or your value to the society has really been increased through the socialist revolution. So, yeah. So it's a really interesting story and a really important contribution at this time to how Mongolia, I think, probably saw itself developing over the next 10, maybe 15 years.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. And I guess in juxtaposition with um, the hardworking herders, right, who are um, contributing to the production of uh, modern Mongolia in chapter six, we we go back to this trope, right? Of the lustful or the libidinous uh, monk um, with, you know, a lot of uh, literature focused on the hypocrisy of monks and also offering kind of social critique of how monks are um, corrupted, right? Uh, using their elevated social positions to elicit Um, all kinds of things from people, like sexual favors even. And this is um, sort of the same in Nasak uh, Nasak Dorj's work, um, The Vulnerable Monk's Tears. Um, So tell us more about how Mongolian socialist literature dealt with topics of religion. So Buddhism has been such a powerful force, a cultural, political, religious force in Mongolia throughout centuries. So how did these new literature... Um, and also writers respond to religion are they more in line with the doctrine of soviet style state atheism?
1: Well they tried um, but failed and i think you know that's r- something that really makes mongolia stand apart um, so choibelsen apparently had a bullet- had an altar in his gear right up until nineteen twenty nine so he had been a monk and he'd obviously not enjoyed it. He'd run away. Um, but still, yeah, he was obviously had some, maybe he was the equivalent of a Christmas and Easter Christian. I don't know. But he he didn't really have any, no one really seemed to have a lot of problem with Buddhism apart from some very, um, very sort of hardcore people who had been, um encouraged by what they understood of um the soviet experiment and the real idea as we we know from chris Kaplonsky's work um on the purges is that you know they needed to get they needed to control and in some cases eliminate um the uh the oppression of the monks, so <clears throat> uh, high taxes um, drawn by the monasteries, the, um, the use of medicine which, um, which I guess we would now characterize as um, alternative medicine was considered to be not sufficiently scientific and not sufficiently Western. Um, but also monks would just go and say a bunch of prayers and get a lot of money for it, and you know, they wouldn't get anything uh and, and the people wouldn't necessarily get better. Of course, there were some really well-trained um herbalists in the monastic community, but there were probably also charlatans. And so, you know, the, the idea was to get rid of these problems um but in order to do that they the writers um and also i think a lot of writers wanted to be seen as sort of forward thinking groundbreaking maybe westernized to a certain extent maybe sovietized to a certain extent so what they were doing is really to um maybe exaggerate a little bit the the uh, corruption of the monks um, but also this this particular story that you mentioned, um, Lambigen Nullens by Natsak George, the venerable monk's tears. Um, that is a real, it it it, I, I've read it so many times, but it still really moves me, because it's about this um, guy uh, Geshe. Uh, so he's obviously an intellectual um who's read a lot maybe not practiced so much he's a galupa, so maybe he's still waiting to go into retreat but you know he's um an intellectual he knows he knows the the scriptures backwards but he's obviously not dealt with his uh sexual yearnings because he falls in love with this woman this um I guess she's probably a prostitute, but it's it's not explicit. But I, I think we can imagine that she probably is. But he basically gives up everything to be with her. And then she lets him down. Then she cheats on him. And at the end, you know, he's left with nothing. Uh, his reputation is gone. His his fortune that he was going to use to go to Lhasa and study for um, an advanced Geshe degree, that's also gone. So, you know, what does he do? And, I mean, there's a whole, I think there's possibly a a chapter or a book even waiting to be written about how, what monks did when they had um, given up uh, being monks, you know, I, we know for a fact that some of them went off um, and did labour and continued to practice because, you know, uh, Vajrayana practice is the mind, right? So you 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 can be doing anything and you can be practicing. Um, you know, that's what we know, and like uh, Mandukhai Boyindelger's work on shamanism is an example of how shamans during this period um, did their own thing and, you know, uh, practiced in their own way. And sure, I mean, you know, monks would have done the same. And, but in order to get there, they had to uh, process not being a monk. And we see um, Geshe Lodon in in uh, Natsuk Dorje's story at the end, um, shedding what Natsuk Dorj describes as dark tears. And he uses this word "har," meaning black or dark, but it also means lay, right? So these are lay tears coming out of the eyes of a monk because he's completely uh, broken all his vows and his entire... Um, um, promise that he made to his superiors and to the Buddha have all disappeared but then we have a play like um, uh, Ayush's um, Yag Arvanim or um, Just 18 about this this young monk who's just turned 18 and you know he is not like Geshe Lodron he's um, very young he's not he's pretty naive and he kind of falls for this um, I think he falls in love he has a crush on her and this is this 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 very um, sort of progressive new woman who um, has a gramophone and who dances and who has all these um, new radical ideas and So this monk has to decide, you know, am I going to go back to the monastery or am I going to disrobe and try my life in the world? And, you know, so I think there were a lot of monks at this time either forced into laicization or who were kind of intrigued by how their life could be in this new revolutionary society. Because don't forget... A lot of these monks had been put there not because they had spiritual aspirations, but because their family couldn't support them so you know there was a lot of this, so presumably there were a lot of monks who wanted to get out, but who didn't really understand how they could do it, what could be done and you know this this uh, play by Ayush really deals with these the, these questions you know how do you how do you get out you know what is what is the process of getting out? Why would you want to um, when you're safe? I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to have to work very hard. You're going to have to meditate and study and you'll be beaten up a lot. But basically, you're safe in, 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 in that sense. Um, so, but if you go out and we see this really clearly with one of this monk's friends, who becomes literally tongue tied? He can't decide what to say about leaving or about staying. And, you know, the, 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 the dialogue, there's a lot of hesitation and a lot of ellipsis. And, you know, it, it's like, what am I to do? Should I go back? I go out? You know, I'm, I'm you know, oh my God, it's, it, it's too scary. I want to go back. But then I know I'm going to get beaten up by the by by the lamas. But if I go out, it's kind of you know what am I to do? Am I going to get a job? You know I, I have no skills, right? So it it seems to me that both the Nilams and also uh, Yagavan name they're both both of these texts are talking about you know the. Not the problem of the monks, but the problem of the psychological problem of how to deal with these people. You know, what do, what do we as lay people do with the monks when they come out? What do the monks as laicized monks, how do they live? What do they do? How do they see the world? And how then do we see Buddhism? if all these monks are leaving, what do we think? Do, you know, do, do we still continue to think about Buddhism as a, a meaningful system um, that can make us happier and calmer and better? Or do we see it as a corrupt um, superstition, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this kind of pure Buddhism that was developed um, by people like um, jamsrano in the in the 20s um, you know th- that wasn't really so popular it wasn't it didn't succeed and so we, we we still have even in the 30s even with the um, even at the time of the purges we have literature about, about religion, even into the 50s, uh, even, even into the 40s, at the height of the, the repressive socialist... Uh, I'm mean, sorry, m- maybe we shouldn't put those two words together. At the height of the repressive part of the socialist period in the 40s was very brutal. There are still, there are still um, stories being written about religion, but they are all negative So obviously there were people who were continuing to practice, and the idea may have been that, and also the you know there was still a provision in the in the law that allowed for freedom of religion. So people were allowed to practice. So this was kind of social engineering. But all of these stories tell of what was happening before, or they tell of very specific cases. Right, so there's this, this um, story by Dandran Zirun called um, Lamin Rashan, the, uh, the Monk's Holy Water, uh, which was about, um, uh, apparently it's a, a real case that happened of a monk who poisoned a child who was going to um, spill the beans about some, something that the monk had done. Um, so this was about this one person this one probably historical figure um about yeah it's about child abuse it's about child killing it's a bit like you know we we see occasionally in this in the newspapers here but it was a monk so what do we think about monks well they can do this but then we know that other people do this and then there's another story um which is centered around um a monastery in um, before the revolution, and so the idea is that the this monastery is um, that, that that monks abused and beat their um, their young proteges. Well, we know that, but uh, in the in the revolutionary period, what does that actually tell us about how religion was understood? You know, this, this story about the, 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 the violence against young monks was actually about learning the Cyrillic script. Right? So if, if um, I want to learn about the Cyrillic script, um, I might read this, this text, which will remind me how dreadful life was before. But it, what does it tell us about how people viewed religion afterwards? Is this simply a, a way of encouraging people to, to, learn, um, to learn about the script? I don't think so. I think it tells us something about how religion was seen. You know, there are bad people in religion. There are bad situations. But no, never, never once do we really hear this religion is nonsense superstition and unacceptable not i'm not ever come across a story or a poem in which that is suggested it's really interesting because there doesn't seem to be this kind of rejection of religion only the rejection of the misuse of religion mm.
0: right? yeah this is a really important point yeah i i also see this um as sort of a an effort to humanize, right? Monks to make them human. Um, because I mean, historically everybody had a monk in their family, right? Almost the the oldest son. So your older brother is probably a monk. So you can't simply just, you know, drive those people out from your circle. Um, they're an interesting part of population.
1: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you know, um, these two earliest, um, the, the two texts that I was talking about earlier, I mean, uh, Geshi Lodron is a very, very sympathetic character. He's a jerk and he's a fool, but he's a really sympathetic character, um, the way Natik Dodge tells him, because he loses everything. He's an idiot, but he loses everything. And what do you do if you put your heart and soul into getting to the stage where you're just about to go and get a, an advanced Geshi degree in Lhasa, and you lose it? What does that tell us, yeah? And yeah, like you say, you know, these, these kids in um, Irish's play are just on the brink of adulthood. They're, st- they're not really adults yet. But how, how are they going to deal with this? You know, what, what is their life going to be like? And like you say, I think that's a really insightful point. These are very human, These are very human responses to religious people and it's really meaningful somehow to read these texts not from the point of view of you know soviet or sovietized atheism but from the point of view like you say of you know this could be my brother this could be my cousin this could be my best friend yeah what are we to do with that this could be me right yeah i mean that the, they were the ones who read so they would have read right if they'd got hold of these books, they could have read it. That's a, Actually, that's a really interesting. I had never thought of that, right? These could be read by the very people about whom they're talking. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. Thank you for l- letting me have that opportunity to improve my scholarship. Oh, no worries. It's really <laughs> yeah, fascinating, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm yeah. personally interested specifically in this chapter, Um because my own yeah, research, but so many great ideas. And I would really love to read uh, some of these work in detail soon. Um, after, yeah. their, Now they've been translated, so uh, we can no. access them now. Um, so chapter seven kind of continues this, this sort of conversation on religion, right? Because when we move to the discussion about health, medicine, and mm-hmm. social development, yeah. um Mongolian medicine has been Buddhist medicine, right, for a really long time. Right. Um, so here you talk about um, how traditional medicine, which was Buddhist medicine, uh, portrayed in literary works, um, and also how they're portrayed in relation to this newer type of Western biomedicine that was mm. slowly but surely replacing this traditional healthcare. So can mm. you tell us more about this in the literary yeah. works?
1: <clears throat> yeah, well... Um... The, I mean, you know, the the ability of Tibetans to be treated uh, medically was very. Uh, I think it was fairly haphazard. And if you're in a, if you're a herder in the middle of nowhere, miles from any other herders or any other any, anyone who can help, maybe there's someone who knows about herbal medicine. Um and you're lucky in that case, but uh, if you're very, very sick, um, prayers and maybe some purgative would be useful. but you know in in extremists, you can't go to the hospital, you can't go to the doctor, maybe. Um, so you know the 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 um, the development of Western medicine, Through the Soviet influence in Mongolia was really um, groundbreaking. And Natsuk Dorj, like I said, was really at the forefront of um, work, really talking about how medicine was changing the lives of Mongolians. Um, So he had been in Germany during the Weimar Republic, which, of course, was also known for um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Um, and there was a lot of work done on that uh, in Germany during the 20s. Um, and, I mean, we can speculate as to why that was. <clears throat> um, but it was a much more permissive um, period in Germany and you know there, there was a lot of um, uh, relationship between classes and between people from outside so you know that has it had its own effect on Nadoj and when he came back to um, Mongolia he noticed that one of the main problems was syphilis and that syphilis, Primarily came from the uh, the way in which uh, Mongolian prostitutes would sleep with Chinese traders in in the Chinese district of U B, and of course that's where um, the prostitute in um, Nantucket Dodge's uh, Venerable Monk's Tears had been coming down, coming out. She was coming out of the the Chinese quarter which I think was shorthand for saying, you know, she'd been, um, she'd been at work in the Chinese quarter. And so syphilis and um, other diseases, uh, which were, were really um, not well treated, and the, and, and the Soviet medicine uh, brought an opportunity to develop that. And so um, they had to find a way to promote soviet um western medicine and part of that was natsak doge's um very short texts about uh, very graphic texts about syphilis and about uh surgery he wrote a really great brief dialogue about surgery and about um a new hospital in which um He is obviously a kind of journalist figure and he meets an old man who says, you know, I don't feel so well. Uh, And he says, well, go to the hospital, they'll treat you. And he says, well, I don't have any money to give them. Um, And he said, you you don't need money. And the man obviously is very shocked by this and delighted and says, you know, I always had to give the monks, I don't know, however much he would give them. Um, but obviously, you know, this was a a way of teaching other people, you know, you could just go to the hospital and you'll get cured. I mean, the, the fact was that it wasn't, this was very hopeful, and it probably wasn't very effective, but it was much more effective than grinning and bearing it, or maybe more effective than going at least to a not very efficient or effective monastic or herbalist doctor. So... We have a lot of examples of, of things like this in, um, in the literature. And uh, one particular uh, example, I think, is um, the play um, called, from, from which the title of this chapter is taken, Life and the Cost of Living. And this is by uh, Nandag. And Nandag obviously had heard of Zola. French author, uh, author Emile Zola. And I don't know whether he would read it in Russian translation. I don't think it had been translated to Mongolian, but um, well, he might have read it in Germany because he was also in Germany with Nabokov. So that's actually most likely. Um, but so he talks about Zola's uh, um, kind of reportage fiction and in this play, Life and the Cost of Living, he kind of, very, he, he sets up uh, these two um, young people, maybe, I don't know, little children maybe, I think they are, and they both get sick. And one set of parents goes to the, to the monastic doctor, and of course this child doesn't get well. The other set of parents go to the um the uh, the Western trained doctor, and this child gets well, and you know it, it's th- there's a, a great deal more to the the, the play than that, including a, a kind of a humorous interlude at the clinic, where there's this discussion about you know ailments and what can be cured and what is you know and you know how how dreadful they feel and you know it, it's kind of a funny a funny interlude, but it probably talks to what other people were actually going through. You go to a clinic, I mean, even now, apart from right now with COVID, but normally you may may go to a clinic and get talking with someone about what's wrong with you. So, you know, it's, it's very, again, it's a very human way of dealing with this really critical question, you know, do you go to the Western doctor or do you go to the doctor who might have been useful in the past, right? And even, you know, they, they were even talking about um, these uh, Western-trained doctors in the early 50s. There's a, there's a really famous story uh, called Mini Surukulinhan, My Schoolmates, My Schoolfellows, by a writer called Lododamba. And that is about a child who falls sick. And the, Soviet, and, and the Russian doctor is the one who cures him. So, you know, this is a very long, a long short story. It's like a novella, but it's really about the process of getting better and how much um, these children respond to this nice Russian doctor who is kind and capable and who makes them feel good and obviously it's propaganda but it's propaganda with a purpose you know like um like namdag's um text too his his play um propaganda with a purpose and the purpose is you know not to reject traditional medicine or maybe it was to reject trad- traditional man- medicine but more to promote the importance of western medicine and the benefits of western medicine i mean you know if, if, if you've been to um, uh traditional medicine um i would say personally that our broken bones are better treated by western doctors but um but things like coughs and and more sort of process um that they, they they are much better treated by Um, alternative medicine so you know this kind of how does it work for you Um, those are questions that I think these writers are also asking you know what can we treat Um, what is useful like surgery surgery you know um, maybe surgery can be done shamanistically um, and energetically for sure but you know, if I have an appendicitis, I would probably be preferred to be treated by a Western doctor. And so this is also the dialogue in which these writers are in, engaging, right? And I think this is, you know, par- partially in terms of building this new society, right? Um, finding out what, how people, how far people are prepared to, to go. How far, how far do you, are you willing to um, test the efficacy of um, Western, this new, this new medicine? And how far are you willing to compare, honestly, to compare with the herbalism and monastic and Tibetan, but basically based on Tibetan med- medical treatment that you're getting from the monastery? You no know, it's it's i don't think it's so black and white as it might be e- it might be easier to to think it's really black and white that socialism soviet western is good traditional is bad but i don't think it's really that easy and i don't and i think they probably realized it was not that easy um even as they were the intellectuals who were expected to promote this and maybe to be seen to be using it in order to promote it too
0: Mm hmm. Wow. Yeah. And traditional Buddhist medicine is large part is very preventative, right? It's, it's also exactly, in your yeah. diet and lifestyle.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah. So unfortunately, right, during the great repression right, so the climate, the political climate changes um, into the 1930s and then during the great repression of 1937, um, you know, some of these writers that we've been talking about like Buyan Neime and Osoya um were being put on trial, right? Um, so what were the charges sort of made against these writers and, and what were the effects of the Soviet-style purge now on Mongolian
1: literature? Well, the the, um, the charges were generally completely groundless. Um, some, some of them... Um, were about collaboration with the Japanese. Um, Some of them were related to the status of Inner Mongolia. Boyanamek was very, very um, involved in the development of relations with Inner Mongolia. Um, So uh, these are the real charges that are brought... um, more generally anti-revolutionary stance. Um, You know, there there was part of the trial that I couldn't find, part of Boyanemek's trial that I couldn't find reference to, so I didn't include it in the book. But um, there is uh, some evidence that he was accused of not be not having been sufficiently revolutionary in uh an essay he wrote um for the 1929 anthology that we talked about a little while earlier um in which he says that um poetry is not always easy for everyone to understand and so the idea was that you know he was creating a kind of um, critical class system. You know, smart people can understand the depth of poetry, but fools and morons can only understand a little bit. Um, so, you know, there, there was this idea that he was possibly slightly tainted by some of his opinions and by the way he was beginning to react against um, the the revolution because I think by that time it was becoming clear that Cheibelson was becoming very very powerful and getting rid of those who were not to his liking Giibelson um, was quite a um, a definitive leader he didn't really like to be bro- to be broached and um, nor did Stalin. and Bonemic was beginning to question their, uh, their personalities and their techniques. Uh, Bo and Jadamsun. Um So I think to a great extent, maybe they were in the wrong sort of ideological space at the wrong time. But um, they were they were eliminated very quickly and they were put on show trials. Um, so the the purge started I think on september tenth, nineteen thirty-seven, and they were both dead by the end of October. And so they were they were very prominent intellectual writer figures and they were prominent in these show trials, and their cases were quite quickly um, dealt with. I think one of the, the, the really key things that we should remember is that um, not only are these individuals who were killed, but also a huge number of the really important writers at the time <clears throat> were either killed or put in prison like Rynchen and um, Dandinseren were both put in prison. Rynchen was sentenced to death and they were only um, exonerated because they were needed by by the state in order to um, uh, I think Dandinseren was brought out in order to um, work on the Cyrillic alphabet. Um, I forget why Rynchen was um, <clears throat> brought out of prison, but yeah, they were both in prison, and they were definitely Rinchen was on his way to execution. Um, so yeah, and so what we what we find is that a, a huge number of of the generation that had really developed Mongolian literature up to that point was wiped out in a few months, and you know it had a. It had a really important effect. I mean, maybe it had a regenerative effect. Um, I mean, George wasn't killed, he died, but he obviously died from stress and drinking and probably the drinking was brought on in part th- through the stress of being um, uh, targeted by by the government because he was beginning to really, really find disfavor with the government because of I think maybe um, uh, I think maybe Natsikdorj had seen too much of the West in Germany, and he had a lot of ideas that didn't really find favor <clears throat> with the new improved Soviet-style Mongolian government. Um, so he was really targeted, and I suspect that had he not died, of a heart attack in July of 1937, that he would have been in the first tranche of um, people like Boyanamek and Yadam who were killed by b- b- before the end of 1937. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then in 1948, right, right, immediately after these very unfortunate events, um, the First Writers' Congress of Mongolia um, convened, right? And this is explored in the last chapter of your book, A Closer Reunion. Um, and, and you argue that this Congress is a very significant point of com- convening right, for Mongolian writers that would shape Mongolian literature for the next three decades. Um, so yeah. what were the goals of the First Writers' Congress?
1: The goals of the first, the goal of the First Writers' Congress was to encourage writers to think about socialist realism in their work. That was the goal. Um, That was the ideological goal. Uh, The the Congress was, uh, I think, ostensibly set up to bring together the writers in the country in order to have some sort of unified... Um, development of Mongolian letters Um, it convened in April of 1948 and lasted for three days and the keynote speech was supposed to be given by this guy called Shirendev who was I think head of the uh, ideology department which is a which is key this was an ideological conference without a doubt but unfortunately shouldn't have um, got into a fight with one of his co-workers a few days before and he was banned from attending and banned from giving this uh lecture and <clears throat> the man who eventually did give the lecture uh, was called uh, Dugeshuron. Who I don't think was really involved in ideology, and he wasn't a writer. Um, Dukasuren is supposed to, still to be alive, and I, he must be about a hundred, if not older. He lives in Moscow, apparently, um, and I I have this fantasy of contacting him and asking him about this, but um, maybe maybe that will or will not happen. But this uh, speech is really interesting because um it sets the the the, uh, the style for all the speech all the all the keynote primary speeches at the conf- uh, at, at the succession of writings conferences <clears throat> over the next few decades And basically it's um, the the focus is uh, socialist realism in the sense of, We want writers to talk about um, how Mongolia is developing socially, industrially, um, ideologically. We want all the work to be in line with the party's ideology. We want um, this idea of socialist realism to really be promoted in every respect and we want people to critique and criticize writers for the mistakes that they're making ideological and characterization mistakes <clears throat> this was the the one message of this conference and in many ways i think so the the reasons why I think this was a, a truly pivotal and vital moment in the process of developing Mongolian literature is firstly, it was the first time that all the writers came together, right? Uh, I think Mongo- I mean, I, I didn't actually read this text before I spoke to you, I should have done. I think there were maybe 35 writers um, mentioned or not, maybe not by name, but the number I think was thirty-five in Mongolia. Thirty-five writers who were regularly producing work in nineteen forty-eight, <clears throat> and I think this was the first time where they all came together. All right. The second, you know, the second really important thing um, is that the ideology, the ideological focus, the the increased closeness with the Soviet Union this had um an effect all the time all the way through right until 1984 when Sedenba was um e- ejected and when in the Soviet Union uh, Gorbachev started to implement glasnost and perestroika and you can I mean you can see ideological changes The 1958, sorry, the 1957 Congress is much more open. Joibelson and Stalin have both died. This was a thaw period before everything clamped down again in the early 60s. So this is much freer. And, uh, you know, this kind of undulating ideological um, perspectives continued on. But this was the really, this was the first moment of the new um, socialist realism, ideological perspective on literature. Yeah, it's it's a really important moment.
0: Mm. Thank you. And what is the state of Mongolian literature today, Mm. and especially sort of since the democratization uh, process in the 90s?
1: Right, well, <clears throat> nowadays um, it's very free and it's very wide ranging. There is uh, literary fiction, poetry, plays, horror, soft porn. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's everything that we have fantasy, science fiction. Actually, science fiction started in the sixties. So, but I mean that that's that's maybe for another for another day. But yeah, it, you know there is everything that you and I would would be interested in reading in English or you know any language that we know well enough to read. So this is this is really um, it's it's a it's a real democratic literary culture. But like I said at the beginning, most. Most writers have to pay for their own work or have a sponsor. There's not a publishing industry. There's the beginnings of a publishing industry like we have, but but not really. So <clears throat> this has one good thing in that everybody can be a writer, and I think that's really valuable because, you know, then you find out whether your work is popular. Um, but then there's a a, a problem because... Um, you know there are runs you know you pay for a run of 500 or 750 or even a thousand um, books but when that's over then you have to buy it again then you have to do it again and you know by that time maybe you're on to your next book so you don't have time so you know the, 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 there is this the, the issue that I talked about right at the beginning you know most most literature doesn't get reprinted um, so, which keeps the libraries as an important resource, and it keeps the bookstores as an important resource, uh, the the used bookstores, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the infrastructural issue, the, the the work itself. So, in the early '90s, there was a um, a, a sudden development of. Uh, very very experimental and um, kind of not positive not um socialist uh writing and um there's a, a lot of very dark um, literature about um, social problems and there was also a lot of fant- uh, um maybe not so much fantasy as kind of absurdist fantasy. But, you know, there's a lot of writers, um, um, a a lot of these writers um, were educated in Russian, and so they were reading a lot of Russian fiction from the 80s, which was also um, developing out of this uh, period of relaxation in Verstreicher. So, you know, there was a... um, a lot of popular culture like <clears throat> Russian rock bands whose music was coming to the West, uh, sorry, to 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 Mongolia. And there were a lot of Western um, uh, <clears throat> music um, that was also getting played in Mongolia. And so, you know, a lot of Western literature being translated into Russian and being read in Mongolia. So there was a lot of interest in Western um European-American literature and culture. So there's a lot of that influence too. But also at that time, we have uh, writers like uh, Mindoyo, whom I work very closely with, <clears throat> um, who was born in 1952. So by that time, he was in his 40s. And he was very aware of the, the possibility that uh, because of the Soviet um, influence, a lot of the culture, the traditional nomadic herd, herding culture had been lost. And so his idea was <clears throat> to write a kind of a nomadic literature. So on the one hand, we have this kind of very cool, almost very urban um, sort of social issue fiction. And on the other hand, we have this much more traditional nomadic fiction which was dealing with the landscape again, with herding culture and with uh spirituality also became very important at that stage because all the you know ev- everything was free the monastery started to reopen in nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one um <clears throat> gandan monastery got its huge Chenrezig statue um and you know people began to really think about spirituality. Shamanism, of course, uh, re-emerged. Um, so people were thinking about traditional culture. Uh, the traditional script was taught in schools for a few years in the early 90s. So all these traditional elements also came back into the literature. And this is now per- has been percolating for 30 years. And, you know, I think uh, Mongolian literature right now is... Is a really vibrant, exciting, uh, amazing uh, group of small pockets of literary culture doing their own thing. And people move very easily through the literary circles. So, you know, we, we, we see people being influenced. Uh, in one part of their work by one thing in another part of their work by another writer or another piece of culture Um, so yeah I think Mongolian literature is in a fantastic place but what it really needs is translation I don't only mean my translation into English it needs lots of other English translation sorry lots of other English translators to work with me or parallel to me alongside me but it also is also being translated into other languages. Like, uh, there are some in French. Um, I know Namendari uh, Shaktisaran, a friend of mine in um, France, is is producing um, translations. Uh, and there are people in uh, Germany and in Korea who are translating. In Hungary, there's quite a lot. In in Russia. There are people who are translating, um, but in terms of the of the English um, the English translations, there aren't so many. Um, but yeah, I mean that's what it really needs. It needs a much. It needs real outreach. It needs um, needs people to go and find these authors and really translate them into lots and lots and lots of different languages. Um, because it's a really fantastic literary culture. I'm sure every literary culture around the world is is equally rich in its own way. but Mongolia's is rich in a in a rather different way because it is the only truly democratic ex um, Soviet <clears throat> satellite. It is halfway, Um, conceptually and intellectually and socially between Asia and Europe. It is truly Eurasian. It is the last, one of the last nomadic societies in the world. Um, It's, it's, it's really a very amazing culture. And I, I, I guess I say that because I'm biased, but the literature is, is really interesting and really exciting in terms of world literature and in terms of comparative literature.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, these are really great points, definitely. I think Mongolia as as a place uh, is still very much on right, in Western yeah. scholarship in many different aspects, right, literature, yeah. religion, history, language. So you're definitely doing, you know, contributing so much to this field already by translating and introducing to everybody, um, these wonderful writers and their stories and their yeah.
1: heartbreaking stories <clears throat> and work. So hopefully right.
0: more will join you later.
1: I hope so. Maybe not so much later, maybe now. Maybe so, <laughs> now yes. would be good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe somebody's already working on some of these. Yeah, um, that
1: would be great, yeah.
0: Yeah, so really very great. exciting. And I guess Mongolian uh, studies is is growing. It's, uh, it's it's rather small field, but it's growing. Mm,
1: it is. So that's a good. Yes, very very slowly, um, and in particular areas too. Um, I mean, like our religious studies, your field. That there are people who are really working a lot on um, Mongolian religion, Buddhism and shamanism. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people working in culture. Um, there are <clears throat> political scientists, because Mongolia is politically extremely interesting course you know there are a um, huge number of historians of mongolia um i mean i guess in a way i fall into the historian category but i think of myself more as a literary historian than uh, than as a as a proper historian historian but then there's also people working on there are also people working on environment issues which are really really important in terms of um mongolia and and um, alternative fuels uh, lots of social science and lots of environmental studies I, I think it's it's a really it's a really rich place for for things other than literature and culture too. for
0: sure yeah mm. I, I sign up um i i <clears throat> have this kind of feet uh, what, what do you call it, like feats or or sign up um for google scholars so i get notifications when somebody publishes on Mongolia, like if there's a paper published with the word Mongolia in the title, and I also get a lot of notifications about like pa- paleontology,
1: so new words, oh, right. yeah. um,
0: dinosaurs.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> right, yeah. Mongolia is very, very, You know, I went to the Gobi once, and no, this is stupid way to start. I, well, the first time I went to the Gobi, I I actually um, went out to this place where there were are, are a lot of dinosaur bones found. And the guy I went with, the the, the guide, j- just found a, a bone. And it seemed... I don't know how he knew it, it was a dinosaur bone. I, I think it was maybe in a rock. I, I kind of remember it being a f- kind of fossilized bone in a rock. And, yeah, it, it was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, because, you know... Um, Sometimes in, um, in the literature, we read how Mongolia was at the bottom of the ocean. You, know, you never think of the Mongolia as being at the ocean, right? You go out into the... But that's why the, the, the steppe is so flat and so kind of step like because it was the bottom of the ocean, right? And, um, yeah, so th- there are lots of amazing... Dinosaur finds, and I think the University of Montana is working on um, paleontological study with, in Mongolia. Ah,
0: interesting.
1: Um, scholars there. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so definitely Mongolia is, is a fascinating place that really should be on the radar of many other scholars.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great.
0: Yeah, and um, yes, Doctor. Welcome. I think I've taken up so much of your time already, but I do have one last question. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your current projects, and also if there's one new book that you would recommend, what would it be?
1: Right. Well, my yeah, my current project is actually to continue where I left off. So <clears throat> um, I'm beginning to think about a book. Which deals with the development of the literature um, through the through the lens of these successive um, Congress writers' Congress keynote speeches, because what I've noticed is that these speeches really. Um, they, they, they chart the course of literature, but they also, because politics is so important, they they really talk about what is the most important thing for the party at that moment, right? So it, it becomes another form of social history. Again, it's like literary ethnography and social history um, through literature. So, um, yeah, so... I'm engaged now in translating the the speeches, and maybe um, maybe the idea will be to to take the the texts that are explicitly mentioned in these speeches, and to look at the history of the the political history at that time through the lens of these not only of the of the speeches but also of these particular texts that are indicated by the speeches because these are examples of writers doing good doing good work and doing bad work. There's a lot of criti- uh, criticism a lot of um, I, I think it's supposed to be positive criticism, but there's a lot of criticism saying you know this writer doesn't do it well enough. And he, he doesn't actually find out how people really live. Um, so, you know, that, that that's the next project. Um, I think this will take a while um, because I have to do a lot of research and a lot of um, my own translation in order to find out what can be used from the texts. But yeah, that that's, that, that's the next real project. Yeah. And yeah, I, I noticed you had asked me for a book and I and I was wondering what to do. so I'm going to be very um, um, I don't know whether anyone has done this. I'm going to give you a book that no that I haven't read yet but I'm going to give it to you because I know that it will be great and it's um, it's by a friend of mine because we are su- such a small group of Mongolian cultural scholars. So it has to be by a friend of mine, I think. Um, So, and I think you might know her too, Oran Chimik (laughs) Tsultmin, Orna Orna Tsultmin, right? Yes. Um, So her book, A Monastery on the Move. Uh, um, (laughs) Have you read this?
0: No, but um, you know what's so funny? This morning I was um, just going to check my mailbox and I just received the book from her today, this morning. And I'm also interviewing her um, on this show later. (laughs)
1: oh great okay yes. so so yeah this is this is the book that i would recommend um yeah i just glanced i probably just I, I got my copy yesterday you got your copy today and i i suspect we've just glanced through and so it's beautifully illustrated um her work is really important and the book um is really about um the uh um, Ulan Bata as uh, as it was, and the development of the um, the lineage of the Bogd Khan and um, uh, Zan- Zana Bazar, the the sculptor and um, artist, and his work. So it's really art it, in a way. Again, it's like Mongolia through the perception through the perspective of culture, through the perspective in Orna's case of of art history. So I am really exciting excited to read that. I also have to write a review of it. So um I'm really excited to do that too because I think, you know, the more we get like like we were saying, you know, the m- more information is put out about these uh these scholars doing the kind of work I'm doing to on on Mongolia, the more people will find out how rich and both intellectually and emotionally and spiritually exciting mongolia is so yeah so that's my that's my unread as yet recommendation
0: yeah thank you thank you yeah. for this recommendation i'm super yeah. excited to read it too yeah. it's probably gonna be how i will spend this weekend
1: <laughs> oh okay you, you you go quicker than me <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah oh thank you so much and, and i'm really looking forward to your uh, new book project too um It'll be a while. <laughs> yeah, but um, I will be patient. Yeah. I will definitely. Um, yeah. I look forward to it. So, thank you so much for taking, um, you know, your time to talk with us and share your wonderful book again on this podcast interview.
1: Well, thank you, Dagena. It's it's really it's it's extremely gratifying to be able to do this interview, and thank you very much. It's it's been really fun.
0: Thank you. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Me too. Um, I had so much fun reading your book. I have to go back to it uh, one more time (laughs) when I write my dissertation. There's so many useful things I can do with your book. Um, So thank you so much. Um, Until next time.